Hey, it's Brandon Laws. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for the download today. Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. Learn more about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution at zeniumhr.com. And if you just need some help, you're an HR professional who can't get to all those projects and the processes. Zenium's got a custom HR solution that helps augment existing HR departments so they can get freed up to focus on what they do best. Learn more at zeniumhr.com. Today's episode features Katarina Polonska. Katarina is a transformational connection coach, and we dive into inclusion practices. So we talk a lot about DEI, and, and Katarina suggests that inclusion is probably the most underrated practice out of all of those. And so we talk about gaining a new perspective on how we can implement new inclusive strategies and impact engagement amongst your people and your entire workforce. So hope you enjoy today's episode. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Katarina is also on LinkedIn as well. So connect with her there. Enjoy today's episode with Katarina Polonska. Katarina, it is a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion practices. Like, well, Let's just start kind of at a, at a baseline, just in case there's people that really don't understand the DEI initiatives that a lot of organizations are, are practicing. You've worked with both startups and the largest companies in, in the world. So I, I would love your perspective on like when you're going in to an organization and doing DEI work, what are the integral pieces to creating a work environment that's inclusive, belonging, has diverse people, like just give me kind of your perspective on the whole thing. Mm, yeah, sure. So I think I think DEI diversity equity inclusion is something that is kind of misunderstood still. It's nothing too complex, but it's been pulled apart, it's been rebranded. I don't even know what acronyms it's got that are trendy right now. But really, when I'm trying to talk about it in a simple, clear way, I boil it down to inclusion. And I mean, that's in the title, right? But inclusion is more important than we think, because if we actually really distill what inclusion is, inclusion is about having involvement and feeling that you're actually empowered to be involved, which again, if we distill even further, is really about engagement. So from a kind of corporate HR speak, I guess, language, Inclusion is about getting people to be, feel engaged. So DNI is about creating that, right? And how do you go about creating inclusion? That's about creating a sense of belonging and psychological safety. If people feel that they belong in an organization, and by that, I mean that they are able to show up and be unique, be themselves, but they're also part of a broader tapestry of an organization, and then they feel safe to be themselves then they're more likely to feel included because they belong. Then they're more likely to feel engaged. Then they're more likely to feel empowered and more involved. And then you have all the good things that companies really want to solve for, right? Like you have better retention because people are able to feel safe. They actually feel like they matter in a company. Then you don't have such a high attrition rate. So you save a lot of money. You have better performance because people are actually showing up. They feel that their voice matters. You have greater innovation, which drives more revenue. So there's a lot of things that come from having DEI, but at the heart of it, to me, it's inclusion. And that's where everything really starts. 
Does that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. And I've I've also heard you're talking about like the acronyms, like what are people doing? What's from a trendy? I've heard a belonging as part of that too. So DEI B. Are belonging and inclusion kind of similar or like do you look at them differently? My gut it almost wants to make them the same thing because I think I'm personally a little bit tired by how the term has been pulled apart in so many different ways. Because every time it's pulled apart, it's got its different nuance to it, a different feel to it. People misunderstand it. And at the end of the day, I'm kind of like, why are we pulling apart a term if the core fundamentals, diversity and inclusion, haven't actually been solved for, right? It's like when I remember when I went to Oxford and the the degree was called Women's Studies. And I was like, this is awful. I can't do a degree called Women's Studies. How embarrassing. And I remember we were all questioning, why is it called women's studies? Like how archaic? And one professor said, well, women still don't have equality. So why are we re, you know, rebranding everything if the main principle of feminism hasn't actually been achieved? So I kind of feel that way with DNI. But I do think they are different. Inclusion is about, yeah, that involvement, that sense of engagement, that sense of empowerment. Belonging is different. You don't have to be involved to feel like you belong. You might want to be kind of tucked away and, and hiding. You might be more shy. You might not want to be speaking up, right? But it's about feeling that you're valued for the unique self that you bring and that you also fit in to this kind of broader tapestry idea. So they are different in a very slight level. There's nuance to it. When you're working with organizations, whether it's the large organizations to smaller ones, like have you ever been involved in DEI initiatives where you're met with any sort of resistance? And if, if so, what what groups are feeling a little triggered by it, I guess I would say? Yeah, great question. I am met with resistance. I think I'll kind of call out the elephant in the room. The first bit of resistance I've had more than once is that I'm a white female and I sound really British. I'm actually a first-generation migrant, and I'm half Slovakian, half Russian, which has a whole host of problems right now, and its own kind of DNI issue. My family are in the Ukraine, but yeah. So it's more nuanced than I think people give it credit for, and the resistance is partly around that. So I think DNI has been really oversimplified, and at the same time, it's been pulled apart. And trying to talk about DNI. The initial resistance is, first of all, who are you, white women, talking about this? And second of all, are you going to start talking about privilege, bias, the buzzwords that everyone's a bit fed up of right now? Everyone's been talking about that till the cows come home. They've lost their meaning. And the emotional charge behind words like privilege is pretty significant. So it's kind of taboo, but I almost don't even use a language of privilege or bias when I'm talking about DNI. It's valid and it's real and it's there. I don't think it's helpful though, purely because the same way that I'm a feminist, but I don't necessarily bring that as the first thing that I talk about when I'm trying to talk about equality or diversity, right? So it's it's just such a loaded topic that is so misunderstood and so polarizing that there's going to be a resistance from all fronts. And so I'm not really answering a question. Your question was about which are the groups that are most. No, you're, you're answering it. I, I, because. Yeah. The, which are the groups that are most like pushing back? I would say it's almost every group. 
Because I think this is the thing, right? As a white female, me talking to a VP of DNI, they might be questioning who is this white female talking to me about DNI? Why is she running it? And I get that. That's completely valid too. Again, there's a lot of nuance to DNI that we don't really talk about that lies beneath the surface. Then on the other hand, you've got the white dudes in the company who are going to be feeling disenfranchised and having backlash and wanting to push back because it's not really seen for them. So it's almost like you can't really win, or I often feel like I can't really win. And there are ways around it. But again, I think it's about bringing that nuance and a level of depth and simplicity to DNI, which is both a complex and oversimplified topic. Sounds really heavy, and it is. It is. So, yeah. Well, well, that's why I like when you started the conversation around like it at the base of it, it's inclusion because you know if if you avoid like the the words privilege and like ones that might trigger you know quite frankly somebody like me like a white male where you're like okay you're just you're just here to attack me and i actually want to be part of the solution right i want to be a, an ally i want to help further the conversation so i get why you start with inclusion because you want to bring people along together is that sort of the way i understand it is that correct yeah 100% 100% and there's also something to be said about if DEI is about inclusion and belonging, at least, you know, for the most part, we should be using techniques and tactics and rooted in inclusion and belonging to get DNI across. I understand the need for bringing heat to the argument, bringing anger. The anger's valid. It's completely valid. I'm, I'm angry. It's completely valid. But is it helpful? That's the thing. And I think in a corporate environment or in an HR environment, it's not that helpful. Maybe it was at the beginning to draw awareness to it and bring the topic to conversation, but it, it's not really helpful now for getting over the line. So that's when I'm thinking there has to be something around bringing in the very techniques of inclusion and belonging, if we want to foster inclusion and belonging. And that means including the people we speak to and including the people who are speaking about it. You shouldn't be demonized for speaking about DNI because you're a white man, right? Like, you want to be part of the solution. So this, again, oversimplified, very kind of binary, polarizing language just doesn't seem that productive if we really think about what we're trying to achieve. What are some of the common misconceptions around DE&I practices? You've worked with a lot of different organizations, probably made up of a lot of different people, but like, what, what are the common misconceptions that you commonly hear about, which is why maybe people have some resistance around getting involved in some of these practices? The most common one is that, and I mean, again, this is a valid, I don't even know if it's a preconception, like a false preconception, but the most common one is that a DNI initiative is going to be deeply uncomfortable, going to make everyone cry. You're going to be screamed at, you're going to be yelled at, you're going to be, all the things are going to be pointed at you. And it's just going to be horribly unpleasant. And everyone's going to be upset. People are going to be angry. And that's kind of it. Very Like that kind of rhetoric is pretty prevalent still. And again, it's valid. But there's no sense of like what happens after that. So there's a this kind of idea that DNA is just about the anger. It's just about the pointing fingers and blaming people and making everyone feel terrible and everyone feel guilty which again, isn't that much of a productive emotion to be having in DNI, but that's it. And I th again, I think that's really problematic. That's something that I think I recognized pretty early into my career in DNI, which was there's a lot of anger around this. And again, it's valid. I'm angry too. And at the same time, how useful is that anger going to be to get 
buy-in from the majority groups who we need to get the buy-in from, probably not that productive. Maybe if we wear away over millennia, but again, I don't think we have the time for that. I get the like the the misconception that you just brought up about just like anger and emotions and, and all that. It is valid in, in my opinion, because everybody's coming from a different place. And I think some of those efforts early on are probably to like seek to understand each other and our backgrounds and our feelings so that we we could come together. And like part two would be like, now what are some of the solutions? Is that is that some of the, pro- I mean, there's, I'm sure there's a way to facilitate a conversation like this. And that's where a person like you comes into place where you can bring people together and not try to marginalize certain groups and not try to like, you know, make people feel terrible just for being in the room just because of the way they look or something. So what are some effective kind of next steps as far as you bring people together, then you come together with some solutions? Hmm. Yeah, really good question. And I think it really is nuanced again. It depends on where the organization's at. In most cases, the, the kind of the formula, I guess, could be distilled into thinking about that inclusion and belonging piece, getting everyone to feel included in the conversation. So we need to prioritize listening and validating people's experiences. And that means everyone's experiences. So even the very seemingly, you know, from a DNI perspective, quote unquote, irrational fears of the C-suite at the top, who might be white men who hold the budget, validating their fears and listening to their fears that actually, you know, they might fear that power is going to be redistributed. They're going to lose their jobs. They're going to be ridiculed, blamed, et cetera. There's a real identity threat going on here and and everyone wants to protect their identity, right? It's a fundamental need of the ego. So listening to these fears, validating them that they're very real and then helping them see how the DNI solution won't actually be doing that. Showing how DNI is actually for them. And to do that, that means the language around DNI has to be changed. And again, this is kind of my belief. I'm, I'm sure some DNI organizations would disagree. But for me personally, when it's come to trying to get buy-in and trying to open a conversation around DNI and trying to build that inclusion, belonging and safety in it, I can't be talking about privilege and pointing fingers and blaming. What I can be doing is bringing that empathy, that listening, that validation and trying to understand what are the struggles? What are the points of disenfranchisement for these people who might question whether DNI is for them. And the starting point for that really was pretty much what I've been studying most of my life, which is disenfranchised white American masculinity, which is kind of like the the topic that I decided to focus on. And that was really interesting because there was a point when I began to notice that there was a lot of resistance around feminism and equality and social justice and all the things that I really believed in growing up. There was a lot of resistance from people that I really loved, actually, like people in my family, people in my peer group. And I couldn't really fathom where this resistance was coming from. So that's kind of what fueled my my initial studies. And the deeper I got into this idea, this trope of the disenfranchised white American man, the more I understood, I understood there's actually an economic issue half the time. I mean, think about it, right? Like if you're born into this, and I'm mean, talking about America specifically, England version of this, but you're born into this landscape where there's the American dream, you know, you've got all these kind of like mythic figures of like the cowboy going westwards and the frontier and, and you have your wife and you have your, you know, your other cowboy friends and you have the land and it's yours for the taking. And then you have this 
very capitalist dream that you work hard, you show up, you build your business, you build your empire, you get the promotion, you get the job, you buy the house, you have the wife, you have the kids. It's a very idyllic dream. And it's still very ingrained into us, right? Like it's right back to the Puritans, like it's so ingrained into us. And so when we think about the quote unquote white male trope, it's almost like this is your entitlement. There's a couple of academics who talk about this kind of entitlement, right? That is imposed from a cultural psyche perspective. And then the reality is, sorry, actually I'll just go back and and add to that. Adding to that is the very real uh, political messages that are fed down from certain leaders like Ronald Reagan. That's who I in particular focused on. And then Trump as well, who's kind of like the working class hero. He believes in blue collar rights and Reagan even wore cowboy boots and they have the right rhetoric. They talk about that American dream. That entitlement is really laid thick. It's seen as a an expectation. And then you get out into the world of work and you start making that money, you start working in that job. And suddenly you realize that actually you're not getting the promotion. The, in this case, blue collar, that's what I was focusing on. The blue collar job that you're doing is likely going to be obsolete with the rise of technology, with like digitization. It's all being outsourced, right? There's like migrant workers coming in and Again, even even COVID and the world of hybrid working and people being able to work all over the world, jobs are being lost, jobs are being spread out. So suddenly the expectation and the entitlement is challenged because it's not coming so easy. You can't just get the house and relationships are harder and all of these kind of things that we that that demographic expect isn't happening. And at the very same time, the people who are I would argue responsible for this are the very ones who are championing that message, right? Like it often is actually the very neoliberal political figures who are the ones who are eroding these opportunities, but they're the ones who are championing that image. So long story short, what happens is there's this kind of disconnect from the expectation, the entitlement, the hope and the dream, and then the reality. And there's no understanding of what's going on. People don't stop to talk about how society and neoliberalism is taking away our, I mean, maybe some people do, but in these demographics, right, it's not really a talked about thing. There isn't really a language for it. And so there's this feeling of, Kimmel talks about aggrieved entitlement. There's this like anger beneath the surface. And that's been taken out on the visible groups who seem to be the ones who are taking the jobs and the women who are taking the jobs and blah, blah, blah. And so long story short, there's a lot of upset. There's a lot of disenfranchisement, disillusionment. Like, I mean, suicide's massively high, right? Amongst men, under 56 killer. But there's no language to talk about it. And even now, I just, I'm going off in a tangent, but the final, final thing I'll add, I was just reading a book by a feminist who's bringing up the same narrative that I've just been walking you through that I've been studying, that I've been really passionate about into the, into the present day and how this kind of culture of young men who are following figures like Andrew Tate and this kind of angry masculinity who doesn't really have any other role model, doesn't really have any understanding of why life is so hard because it is. And so they point to these figures who are angry and who give them some kind of a role model. And again, it's, it's not the solution it's not really going to help in the long run, but there's nowhere else to turn and there's no language to understand their plight. And so to bring it back to DNI, for me, my biggest passion is how can we facilitate dialogue and create language 
to bring more understanding, more empathy, more listening, more validation, and show that actually DNI, when done properly, is for everybody. It's not just for minority groups or women. It's literally for everybody, including the white men who are being screwed over very often by economics that, again, is an invisible force no one really talks about. So it's for everyone. We need to talk about it, find empathy, find listening, and bring some like compassion to the to the dialogue. You may have think you just went on a tangent, but that was actually articulated perfectly. I never even really thought about it that way. It's like there's a group of people that are really holding on to this ideal uh, fantasy of the American dream. Uh, I'm sure there's an equivalence in in other countries as well, but like just the so holding on to something that's no longer there. Technology is a huge force. The economic, like whether invisible hand, whatever you want to call it, the market forces, there's there's a lot at play. And I like your ideas of like, well, the DEI conversation is actually just to bring people together to find solutions, probably build new skills, find ways to communicate with each other, move forward. I mean, we're going to all wrap around artificial intelligence and other tools that automate. And if we hold on to something that's no longer there, we're going to be, I think people are going to be angry. I think to your point, people are going to be angry and not going to know why. And they're going to point their fingers probably in the wrong directions as to what the causes are. So I like this idea of, of bringing people together, inclusive conversation and path forward, right? Yeah. And actually, just to add to that, like you're spot on, I think education as well, right? Like to have that inclusive conversation, we need to have education around the the conversation that's being had. So it's likely not going to be very helpful to have a conversation where we're just talking about our grievances and our anger. And like, again, this is all valid, but I think having a conversation about like, what are the different forces at play that are often so invisible and we, you know, often shouldn't be talking about, like, it's not a topic that we're invited to challenge. For me, it was such a, an eye-opening discovery when I was like, oh, I get it. Like, I really understand now how it's actually economics, which, I mean, economics drives so many things, but of course there's anger because there's a lot of entitlement that's actually not happening now. That makes sense. And you see it in millennials, right? Like, most millennials don't have homes that they can just afford. There's an anger there. I mean, it's like manifesting probably as anxiety, but there's still this conversation that needs to happen about what's happening to us. And then there's the education around that. I agree. How do you like take steps towards having those conversations? Because I think like for a lot of people, they're like, oh, this, this DEI initiatives are like a distraction from business, you know, just being productive and just our regular day-to-day business. But I think what you're arguing is it's actually part of the path forward and becoming a productive society. So how do you make those steps forward? That's a great question. I think it just really depends on the organization. What I have found to be really effective is really two things. I think starting with what isn't that, I mean, it can be effective, what isn't the most effective thing that is often rolled out is doing some kind of a company-wide survey and doing a, you know, DNI audit and kind of getting a sense check of like, what are people thinking about? What are people worried about? That can be useful as a baseline, but it's not going to give you the information that you're looking for when it comes to starting that conversation. To do that, it needs to be a sort of a, a focus group or some kind of a safe dialogue group that might be an ERG group. It might be it might just be a room of people who want to talk about it or who are open to talking about it and doing some kind of an interview style dialogue process where people are allowed to share. 
that's one way of getting the conversation going. Because actually when people begin to share their experiences, then we realize there's some commonality. The other one is to do interviews. So that can be quite laborsome and time consuming to try and interview everyone, right? But this is also where coaching comes into play. And coaching, again, can be very expensive. So I've not seen D&I group coaching, really. And I don't know how effective it is. I mean, I'm a coach myself, like the whole one-on-one aspect is what drove me to move away from being in the behavioral science business, actually doing the coaching myself, because I can see how when it comes to DNI, you do need to meet people where they're at. It's quite scary to talk about DNI if you don't know what you're talking about, you don't feel very psychologically safe, and you feel like you're on the spot. People aren't really likely to open up. So that one-on-one aspect is really important. But again, how scalable is that? It might not be that scalable, especially if we're talking about people kind of who are like frontline workers, right? So that's where the group aspect, I believe, will be the most helpful. From an interview perspective, absolutely. I would imagine so from a coaching perspective too. Those are great insights. I really appreciate you coming on. I know this is like just the tip of the iceberg on this conversation, but I've interviewed other people on on DNI and they all have a different bend to this. And that's why I, I really like your perspective. It's something that's I haven't talked about on here and I haven't heard too many people talk about that. It's an economic problem mostly. Um, so yeah, thank you for coming on. Where can people learn more about you, uh, what you're up to and, and ways to connect with you, anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. So I have my website, probably the easiest way to reach me. It's www.katharinapolonska.com. I'm sure that'll be typed up somewhere in your notes for people who don't know how to find my name. Or LinkedIn. I'm always on LinkedIn. I virtually live on LinkedIn these days. So DM me on there and I'm always down to chat. My guest today has been Katarina Polonska. Thank you for being part of the show. Appreciate you. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.